Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chillister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 20 where we'll be discussing... Oh, I, no, it's not episode 20, it's episode 22. This, <laughs> oh, I'll give up. Scheitler. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just keep going. No, no, this is good. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> episode 22. Scheitlerhau. So, what have you been up to in the last week, yeah, Hannah? <laughs> I'm so sorry for laughing. <laughs> um, Maybe we should all say what time it is where we are. Um, it's uh, half past eight around here. Oh, uh, PM, of course. <laughs> so it's in the evening. What have I been up to? Oh, I fenced again. Yeah, I I sparred the last three days and my body feels like as if I've been hit by a truck. I have never actually been hit by a truck, but that's how I imagine it. My, I, I think my corona body can't handle sparring yet, so I am in pain. Anyway, I also registered in my first tournament um, post-COVID. So if everything goes well, there will be a tournament on the first weekend of October in Switzerland. And Ooh. I am planning on going there, but we'll see. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, going to be a long sword. in Switzerland? Oh, sorry, what did you say? German Switzerland? Uh, <laughs> I, I think in Bern. So I, I've never been there. I, I think it's like a five-hour drive, so nothing too bad. And we're going there with some club members, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Chillister, what have you been up to? Well, for the record, it's 2.39 p.m. here, so much earlier. Um, and this week, we wrapped up the Fiore facsimile drive, raised $84,550, and going to produce... Well, we have orders for 337 um, Fiore facsimiles and an additional 97 Talhoffers, um, which surprised me. But apparently Talhoffer has more fans than Fiore because that puts him up above 400. That doesn't surprise me, actually, because like the, um, the first round of Talhoffers are out now. So people have been saying this is cool and now they have a second opportunity to buy it. Yeah, I know. Um, although I'm surprised that I'm not surprised at how many Talhoffers sold so much as the, how few Fiores sold, because I don't imagine that there are hardly anyone who studies Talhoffer more than they study Fiore, since no one studies Talhoffer. So the fact that that one got more popular is sort of surprising to me. Um, but we'll see. Maybe if I do a second run of Fiore printings at the end of the year, I'll get a bunch more of those too. I don't know why people didn't don't just trust that this thing's going to be awesome when I tell them about it, but apparently they need to have they need to see it first, and then they feel like they were left out. Trust me, guys, I don't produce things that suck. <laughs> Big claims, uh, Steve. What have you been up Except to? Booked an hour. Hmm. Booked an hour doesn't suck. All right, I have been okay. So a couple things uh, last weekend. We had some visitors in my area from uh, the Pittsburgh, Ohio area, which was cool. And um, so it was fun to get to fence some different people. We fenced outdoors with face coverings on and everything. And yesterday, which would have been uh, Thursday, 
I did my first in a series of modern fencing referee clinics. And Ooh. it's like a four-part thing with like two-hour sessions each. So uh, that was that was fun. But unfortunately, in like the last 20 minutes or so, at the end of the last 20 minutes, my the power in my house went out because we had some strong wind and rain. So I had to... <laughs> I had to be the guy that dropped out early. So, what kind of which weapon was it focusing most on? Epe or it's all weapons. It's just it's um it's like a required clinic for um like a referee refing certification. So you take the the uh, clinic and then you take like an online test, and then you can start refing like local tournaments. And once you start refing locals, you like get earn like a um a rating cool but it was interesting comparing uh the stuff there to how things are run in uh hema tournaments especially what, like the, what would you say the, the biggest couple of differences uh the code of ethics not refing somebody where there's a like a clear conflict of interest or even like a conflict of interest that could be implied like riffing somebody from your own club, which people do in HEMA all the time. That was probably the biggest thing. But hmm. yeah, I guess people coaches tend to bow out of drafting when it's one of their students, but I guess club uh, makes not in my experience. I've yeah, seen coaches cool. many times do that. I don't know if it's universal, but it's a, a thing that happens. Very like, very rarely have I seen that happen in HEMA. I've seen it happen, but I've also definitely seen it not happen. It's, it's a case of you volunteer to judge because you want to help people volunteer to ref and then you're given three people from your own club. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... With with the way that it's currently... HEMA tournaments are currently set up, which is like if you're a fighter, then you're refing. It's very difficult to avoid those conflicts of interest, especially since like it's a conflict of interest to be refing the, the tournament that you're competing in in the first place. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that part's true. Yeah. So, but anyway, maybe someday we'll get there. <laughs> Just thinking, I bet you could try and calculate pools and judging staff to separate people like that, but that would probably be a huge logistical hurdle. Right, especially when you're already trying to calculate pools for, like, you know, how pools should be calculated. Yeah. And in particular, because if you've got like some turn, some clubs who've brought in a lot of people, uh, you probably want to try and divide those fencers up so they aren't just fencing each other in the pools. Yeah. But if you want to make sure they're avoiding their own club members as refs as well, you kind of want to bunch them together. And that's a really difficult problem to solve. Yeah, the real solution for this problem is like is hiring third-party refs and paying them money and having them like where the only thing they do in the tournament is ref. So maybe someday that will be the norm in HEMA. But that day yeah. is not today. <laughs> we tried to do that in Long Point 2017, but the Olympic fencing refs who we, who we were trying to bring in, if I recall correctly, bowed out at the last minute, so we couldn't make that happen. But we had budgeted for it and everything. It was something that we were seriously investigating, but it, to my knowledge, it's never happened for anyone yet. We actually have that. So uh, we I'm have... in the United States, sorry. Oh. 
Like we have uh, judges qualifications or, or qualifications for referees, um, so that not everyone is allowed to judge or, or ref uh, fights. And so usually when we have tournaments in Germany or Austria, then uh, our referees are not allowed to compete themselves. So they're only here for the judging. I've heard that Eastern Eastern Europe is doing some good things with judge training and, and some yeah. of these statistics as well. Yeah, um, the Slovakians have a um, like a trained judging cadre. And I think the Poles, I've heard, hire in modern fencing referees. Um, but I haven't gone and competed with them before, so I don't know the details. Back in the day, for like 2013 or so, when I was fencing at Skunks in Poland, some of the judges and referees did have Olympic fencing credentials. But I don't know if that was more who was interested and available rather than a, an organized thing from FEDER, which is the Polish umbrella organization, because of course they've got a cool name. <laughs> I bet they worked hard for that acronym too. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, Hi, we, 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 we probably don't need to talk about <laughs> um, the refereeing systems of your, uh, sorry, the world. But still, <laughs> um, I, we have like the Austrians and the Germans and I think the Hungarians because we, we started to accept each other's qualifications uh, for refereeing tournaments like last year. So we can um, have uh, referees from Hungary and referees from Germany in our Austrian tournaments. Anyway, uh, we have a list of all active referees that is like published. So if you want to hold a tournament and need judges, you have a list of all the people who have uh, the needed qualifications and like address, uh, email address and how to contact them, which is pretty cool. So you can always have uh, trained and more or less <laughs> qualified <laughs> uh, referees in your tournament. I, I think that's pretty cool. There have yeah. been talks of a judging certification for like the Long Point League area, which is like the Northeast US. I don't know if that's still ongoing, but I think it was supposed to launch this season, which was canceled because of COVID. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I, don't know what the of that is, but I know that I, I'm pretty sure they finished designing it. It just hadn't been implemented yet, last I heard. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so right. <laughs> T, what have you been up to? Uh, nothing anywhere is exciting, to be honest. We ran the second session of my club resuming after COVID, so I've put some more use on my little longsword foils, which is nice. They're proving pretty good so far, um, and after another couple of sessions of work and some harder fencing with them, um, I'm probably going to write a full review and bring that out, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, hopefully there'll be a good, a good training option for direct lessons and stuff, but nothing much else to highlight. Haven't you done another post on the or world domination page on Facebook? I mean, yeah, I guess I've still been uh, writing uh, further things on my series of guides to uh, little aspects of teaching. So I wrote one last week about preparations um, and preparatory actions, which are probably a topic we'll start to cover on this podcast in some of the future, some of the future episodes. And there's still more of those incoming. So if you're interested in teaching uh, or coaching, go check out Hemoral Domination. There's like a million posts there now. And cool. that's, I think, all. All right. Hi, everybody. It's Mike here. It is now 10 to 7 on a Saturday morning here in New Zealand. So, oh, and it's, uh, it's 10 to 8 here in the UK, PM. 
Yeah, so I, I can't remember if it was Doug or somebody on the Discord was like, yeah, you sound a little bit groggy at the start of these. Mate, I am hanging. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's like the only time that works for everybody. And I, I get up early for work, so I don't mind. Um, but I thought it was actually later in Europe when we did these. You guys are always complaining about being tired. Yeah, because it's three hours later by the time we finish. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah, the Europeans are getting tired by the end of the recording. Yeah. No! Right. <laughs> uh, whereas I'm waking up in the dark for it. All right. Um, anyways, what have I been up to? Nothing much. We've gone back into lockdown here in Auckland because we have magical, mysterious COVID cases. So our clubs normally trains in a school. They're not too keen about 20, 30 people trumping in twice a week. So we can't have games there until this cluster's resolved. So during my lunch break at work, I take out 15 minutes and hit one of my colleagues with a foam saver in the car park <laughs> around the back. Nice. I would like to point out that my colleague also does HEMA. <laughs> he used to be one of T's uh, students. <laughs> that makes it slightly less weird, I hope. <laughs> um, that's actually been quite fun. Helps to relieve work stress. Uh, and he also has a saber to defend himself. <laughs> there were definitely points in this work week when I wish I could have gone and beaten some of my colleagues with a foam sword, although I probably wouldn't have given them one as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alright, yeah, Hannah, could you give us the original German for this, for the Scheitelhau? Oh yeah, this episode's on the Scheitelhau, which is got many translations. We're going to go with the peak hue, because it rhymes with <laughs> TQ. <laughs> 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 yeah, Hannah, could you give us? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> could you give us the original German for this section? <clears throat> der Scheitler, dem Antlitz ist Gefahr, mit seiner Kehr der Brust fast gefähr. Was von ihm kommt, die Kron das abnimmt. Schneid durch die Kron, so brichst du sie hart schon. Die Striche druck mit Schnitten sie abzuck. Thank you very much. And, uh, Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? The Scheidler cut can condemn the face, but when it turns, it will set on the chest with great threat. What the Scheidler brings forth, the crown drives it off. So slice through the crown, and you will break it well down. Push the sweeping attacks with a slice and pull back. Man, what was that rhyme at the start? <laughs> the Scheidler cut can condemn the face, but... <laughs> Were beauty, but <laughs> however, rhyming off and forth. That's like that's level. that's a proper yeah. sort of folk song level bad rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Again, I wonder what his accent sounds like. All right. Uh, g'day. Harry's accent, yeah, kind of Australian. Like, so what does title how mean, everybody? The scalper. It's the skull splitting cut. The parting The peak the wood, the wood the cut. <laughs> the apex hue. The vertex hue. The apex. Vertex. Alright, so so my my understanding is that the the shuttle is the, the tippy top of something. <laughs> the tippy so, top of someone's head. 
Okay, yeah. So, like, the crown of their head. So we should call it the crown cut. No, so the problem with all these names, if we haven't figured it out already, is every translation for Scheidel has multiple meanings in English, and the first thing that you think of for every single one of them is not the intended one. Yeah, so like parting cut, you think of it like a parting blow. Actually, it would be a hair parting. Right, exactly. Or the crown, people think of Posta de Corona and being a lord and all of that, not like the crown in your hair. Whereas when you scalp somebody, you don't use the scalp cut, so that gets kind of confusing. We already have a thing in English called scalping. The the only one that's not problematic is PQ. (laughs) PQ. I love it. <laughs> Hold on, but if we go with crown cut, then we can talk about how the crown breaks the crown. And that would be great. That would be the clearest. But, but the problem with PQ is is when you translate Scheidler, you get Peaker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is like Squinter. <laughs> I, I, I failed to see the problem. That's when you cut your eyes and cut, right? No, no, this will be P-E-A-K. I think think for this episode, every one of us should pick a different translation, just for the fun of it. Can we we call them the Pika and the Pika? (laughs) (laughs) Call it. Yeah, translate Sheel as P-E-E-K and Shidal as (laughs) P-E-A-K. That would make the Shantri Seidler even better. Oh my god. The peaker with the peaker. Alright. Yes. Uh, I'm going to. What should I do? Shall I read out the gloss of this section? That's normally what we do, right? Uh, help, sure. Help me out, guys. The parter is dangerous to the face, with its turn very dangerous to the breast. What comes from him, the crown takes that off. Slice through the crown, so yet you break hard. Press the strike, with slicing you pull off. Gloss. Remember, the part counters the guard, which is called Alba. It says the tree here, but I'm going with Alba. Sorry. And with its turn, very dangerous to the face and the breast. Drive the part like this. When you approach him with your onset, if he lies against you in the guard of Alba, then set your left foot fore and hold your sword on your right shoulder, or with arms outstretched high over your head in the guard of the day, and leap towards him with your right foot and hew with your long edge strongly from above, down from your part towards his head. And with a stroke, remain high with your arms, and if he displaces, lift the pommel of your sword over you with your left hand, and sink your point in towards him, with your long edge above his hilt, and stab towards his face. That'll do us for a moment, won't it? Face or breath. One thing I just want to pull out very quickly is that the hold your sword on your right shoulder or with arms outstretched over your head is a like a conflation of two glosses. No glosses say that you can do it from either of these positions. Um, they all specify one or the other. We're going to see that a lot in this section. This, for, for anyone who hasn't cut on yet, is the thing that I put together. Um, that, that Mike, what Mike just read is a thing I put together trying to harmonize all the glosses. So in this section, there's going to be a lot of contradictions between glosses. And the harmony is difficult to see sometimes. 
So yeah, so Dantic says, hold it on your shoulder. Lev says, hold it over your head. And I believe Ringek doesn't tell you anything about how to hold it. Ringek says, start from your scheidel. <laughs> yes, which could be at the Vumtag over the head if you assume it means your hair part. I do. So, uh, I do or it could that. mean that you're resting your sword literally on your head and then cutting from there. Well, you can do Vumtag like that. Very kind of. I do that with the deucec a lot, but not with the long sword. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> anyway, I think right. that I think that the uh, Danzig is the only one that says the shoulder, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Nicholas so agrees with Lev, I believe. Yeah. So therefore, it should probably be over the head because Danzig is not as legit as the others. Boy. Now, <laughs> 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 pointing out that when it talks about displacing. Ringek says if he displaces, whereas Danzig tells you he's going to use the crown. And Lev and Ringek move the crown much further on. Yeah. Uh, I think in Danzig, Danzig actually has my favorite for the beginning of this, because it's the least confusing. You just do a cut, you cut in from above, and then he parries, and then you, you sink the point in. Rather than the other ones, which say cut and sink the point in. Yeah. So th this is a big question that we that that we should talk about, which is how many plays of the Scheidelhau are there? Because you could argue. I mean, in Ringek, it's pretty clear that there's two different plays being discussed, and in Danzig and Lev, it's squishy, and it's often interpreted as a single play. So because the and, it, and what it comes down to is the way your opponent is responding to your Scheidelhau. And how many different ways can he parry the Scheidelhau, I think, is the way I would break it down. So Ringek seems to imply that he can do some kind of parry that's not described, after which you will thrust over his parry, and then if he raises up, thrust underneath. Whereas if he parries with the crown, you're going to do a different play. You're going to slice through his arms. But all of that sort of blobs together in Danzig into a single sequence. Yeah, um, and Lev, I could argue, might be aligned with Ringek, but he doesn't really give you enough information to say that for sure. The way I normally break down the Ringek one when I'm teaching it is less that the action they're doing is different, but that the footwork they're doing is different. So really? if they if they parry with a step forwards, but like you're stepping forwards with your shaitel, right? And if they're also stepping forwards with their parry, the distance is collapsing very fast. You don't have space to bring your point in anymore, and it's going to turn into wrestling range very quickly. So you need to slice. Whereas if they parry staying still or with a step backwards, you can work the point in instead. Yeah, it does say here, uh, if he parries with the the parry that's called the crown, he runs in with it. Yeah, it says that further down in Ringek, right? Right, in Ringek, yeah. So oh. the assumption is that the crown, he's setting up a running through. Or running in. Or, yeah, running in, whatever, if that's different. That's what, that's what the opponent does, is run in. You do the run through, because you're way smarter. You run through instead of in. Okay. Um, it's very early in the morning. I'm not very bright at the best of times. So, <laughs> your opponent <laughs> is standing there in the guard of the tree, as this is translated. I'm going to keep calling it the fool. They've got their sword pointing at the ground, right? It's the poplar tree, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun next episode. Never mind. Yeah. We can go with Oliver. And so you put your sword to your shoulder or above your head, and you strongly cut at their head. That is 
pretty uh pretty uncontroversial, right? No. Well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. So what Zach actually says is you're cutting um the hue with a long edge two, strong which can mean at or to or toward it doesn't necessarily mean that you're hitting his head. Okay. All, all Zhu expresses is that it's going in the direction of his head. So that's the first thing. Any, any interpretation that requires you to be close enough where you can put your edge on his head is adding things to the text that aren't there. All right. Well, you're springing at them and you're cutting at them. Is that fair? Yeah. You're, do you do or don't agree, Steve? Do not agree. Okay. What do you, what do you disagree with? Because if you're hewing to their head, like what are you going to do? Stop your hue before it gets to their head? No. How, how can you how can you hew to their head without like? Well, but if you're hewing toward their head, you don't necessarily have to be close enough to hit it. Yeah, but zu does not mean towards. It means it to. It totally means toward. No, that's nach. Johanna, Johanna, settle it. we have someone who could actually speak the language. Yeah, uh, what what are you talking about? Okay. So if, when if if you I, I have I have the German in front of me, so if you're swinging your sword, zoo someone, does that imply yeah. that you can actually hit them, or you would hit them if they did well, nothing? Well, it's pretty directional. So. Or could they be Ooh, like two hundred miles away? Could you still? Cut. In zoo. in my read of the gloss, when they want you to actually hit something, they say Gagan, not Zoo. Hmm. Mm, no, I, I think you can actually hit someone <laughs> with it. Uh, it. It reminds me of that some cop from some live, huh? Right, but in Hello, those places, and welcome to Fences by the, the, the podcast where we read dictionaries. <laughs> oh yes, we do. So. Let, let me like let me try to like work logically through this so say you're hewing like to someone's head however you interpret yeah. to so the sword is coming down the edge is coming like towards their head so what are you going to do stop the sword before it gets there so no, i think next point right is that sorry you might you might be doing it from, say, far enough away that your point's going to end up, your point edge is going to end up just a little bit in front of their face. Like, but then you know, are you doing to their head? Well, you, you had that argument with Mike. Yeah. I don't have an opinion. <laughs> I think so, both would work. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll also add that I previously interpreted all instances of two as meaning that is your target, or that that is what you were trying to hit. And then some Germans at some event I went to told me I was dead wrong. And that that's reading the English, not the German, and told me that I had to understand zoo as meaning toward, and that's been my interpretation for most of the time since then because it just makes the plays make more sense. So in this case, I think that you're cutting a line that intersects their head, but you're doing it from far enough away that your point is actually what's threatening them. So then the line doesn't intersect their head. It does in two two-dimensional space. When you're looking at them, your sword is going <laughs> towards their head, but the distance is such that you're actually threatening with the point. Which is also what the title says. Mm. Okay. I can well, also portray you pictures. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I get what you're saying. Um, and I realize this is not the common interpretation. So if you think I'm wrong, then you're you know not the only one. 
but it's the only way that I've been able to make sense of what's going on here. So I don't think it's necessary to hew from this far away to be able to get the point in because the actions you do with the hands afterwards, keeping them keeping the hands high and so forth, let you bring the point in at a closer range that could have been a direct cut distance. You're doing a shortened action with the arms, basically. Right. Yeah, I think I was going to say I think that interpretation is more common than you think, Michael. Uh, I, I seem to get arguments about it a lot. So of bringing the point into somebody's face. Um, but I should also add that, an argumentative person, Mike. That's a, well, that's that's not untrue. <laughs> I mean, no, you're wrong. Um, but so I, I also tied this in my head all the way back to the general lesson, and this is why T and I have been saying through many of these episodes that the Zarn and the Shadow are the same cut, because they're both actually the same action that's being described in the general lesson. Of you're simply cutting so that you um, put your point in front of their face or chest as it's described there, only you're doing it in different contexts. Um, and in this case, you're doing it against somebody who's standing in Alber or the poplar tree, which um, is enough reason apparently that it gets a new name and isn't just called the same as it was before. Um, but physically, the action I'm doing, I'm doing a Scheidelhau, and the action I'm doing when I'm doing at Zornhau are the same cut. The difference is what my opponent is doing. So that's not quite the reason I'd say they're the same action, but it's close okay. enough for close enough for now. Um, basically, they're like the two halves of the action. The they're both you cut from your shoulder, so there's nothing special in your blade action. I mostly do the shadow at a range where the edge is probably going to be able to hit. Um, I think that's fine. But one is an action you make offensively, and one is an action you make reactively. I'd buy that. I think the only difference there is the distance we do it at. Then. Um, I think I agree with everything else. I agree with both of you. It's both an offensive action and it's something against Albert. Those are both, you know, other than that, it's the same cut as it's Um But I, yeah, I, I, maybe I just don't like getting close enough to someone in Albert that I could put my, my edge on their head. And I would prefer to work in with the point. That's me personally. But if you okay. have a different strategy for actually entering that way, then I can see it working. I just get hit a lot when I try and actually cut them. Be tall, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, this works perfectly. Oh, but... well, I'll have to give that a shot when we start fencing again. <laughs> uh, so okay. I, I want to bring up what I think is the most controversial thing, the, the biggest head-scratcher of this technique, which is um, especially from Rayek and Lev, is... Uh, hold your sword with outstretched arms, heal with the long edge strong down from above, and remain with the arms high, and sink the point yeah. downwards to his face or chest. Yeah. So that remaining with the arms high leads to, I think, some interesting interpretations involving... Oh. Interesting. Yes. Well, I think this goes back to is it the illustration in the Goliath manuscript? I don't know if there are others where the hands are at head height or higher. And then but in Goliath, he's sending his point underneath his opponent's guard, so he's already at a different point in the action. Yes, uh, same in, Glasgow, in Glasgow, he's doing an ox like position, but you could argue that's thrusting over the parry and not doing the initial cut either. Okay. I'm not aware of a text that shows you what a Scheidelhau against Albert looks like. 
like in in mid Scheidel. Agreed. Uh, Clooney uh, does. Clooney no. shows you the starting position, yeah. and he shows you the parry. Um, I would say Clooney is showing you the mid position. That's why the foot is forward, but the sword is still like halfway there. Okay. The sword is is the point is behind his head. When he's standing, it looks like he's pulling back to throw the cut, but he's not cutting yet in that position. Unless but you're he's taken of um, tug. He's taken. No, I'm thinking of the um, of the shadow how um, he's taken a full step forward with the right foot. He has, but he still has his sword over his head. He hasn't begun the forward motion yet. It looks like. Yeah, I think partially so that's a. In the show notes, by the way, since so that hmm? people aren't complete. We should link to this in the show notes. People aren't completely lost. If somebody's uh, really I, smart, they could look up what the page is. Uh, just post a link in the Discord so I can copy and paste it next week when it's right. not early. Yeah. Um, um, so the thing which I think is going on in Clooney is that there's a the way that the mid step is being like the the middle of the action is being shown is by having done the footwork action but not yet the hand action i don't have an opinion about pictures so what i mean is like them in my fencing books (laughs) (laughs) so so what i'm saying is that's showing the step but not the actual cut something that we can use to visualize what the path of the cut is or any position of the cut doesn't exist as far as i know um, yep. All we have is the is the before and the after of the cut, which is well, frustrating as hell, by the way. Well, if you look at that after cut, and I mean, you can't take this like as full canon because he's doing the crown the alternate way, which is not described in RDL. We'll get then, to that. sorry, I said we'll get to the crown. Don't worry. Yeah, I'll talk about the um, crown. it doesn't look like. He is breaking his wrist structure. It looks like he's just doing a regular cut. So agreed. Okay, I, I think that we need to take a step backwards. Funky here, and say that uh, the background to this is that for many years there has been a pretty widespread interpretation of the Scheitel How that involves cutting so that your hands. So your arms are outstretched to head height, and your wrist structure is broken. And, and the point just in... like boops down to, to get yeah, the time. And it, and yeah. it ties into ideas about uberlaufen and overreaching, which we haven't brought up so far because they're not in the bloody text right? at this point. That'll be like uh, six episodes from now? Yeah. But... I... Um, yeah, so that's basically a short sound in my book. I mean, you're you're trying to do a plunge cut, as opposed to a shadow But with the long edge and with, with the long really edge. Bad, and with really bad wrist structure. Yeah. So can we talk about why we none of us like that one? I mean, I was work. just going to talk about the way I tend to teach people this action now, which is pretty much that you just cut and keep your hands roughly at shoulder height, so they stay like pretty much high. That'll right. get the edge down to head height. And you can easily, from there, push the hands back up to work like the point in if you want to. But it keeps so it high I, enough. I had an interesting experience uh, maybe last year, back when we still fenced, um, where in we were doing time. drills. What? <laughs> in the before time. Yes, before before the world ended, we were doing drills um, around Chison, um, shooting the point in based on the general lesson. And I was discovering that being short and facing an opponent who was had maybe 
100 pounds and six to eight inches on me, I could not effectively threaten him with long point held in a normal long point position because my point was below where he could even see it. Um, and what I ended up doing to actually make him respond to my threat was doing what I now think of as the Scheidelhau, which is raising my long point up until my arms are parallel with the ground and my point is aiming even higher. Um, and at that point, uh, two things happened. I couldn't, I finally managed to get him to parry um, when I got close enough that I could stab him in the face. And second, when he'd parry, I didn't have the ability to go into any of the Zorn plays. I didn't have the leverage to actually try and fight the bind. All I could do was try and do some of these movements where you try and angle your point over and then go underneath his parry. So by raising my long point up that high, the place of the Scheidelhau were what naturally happened instead of the more normal windings I would try to do. Um, and they were the only easy things to do. So it suddenly clicked in my head that all these pieces could explain the way the Scheidelhau is set up, that it's a very high long point because you're threatening in the face. Um, and then the leverage requirements mean that you can't try and push his sword aside. All you can do is try and thrust around it. Did you ever do any under slices from there? I did not. I was at a distance where thrusting made more sense. Drat. Um, but the under slice has given me problems in the past. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I can do that play very well. The under slice works great from here if you can get them to bite on taking a step forward. This is why I distinguish when I'm like doing classes about this action between what happened, what you might do as a continuation if they stay still versus what you might do as a continuation if they try to enter distance against your shaitel. When the distance is collapsing, it's good for the slice. When the distance is staying wide, it's really, really bad for the slice. Cool. Oh, and the so, other reason why this, the Zornhau is because this play of thrusting over the parry and thrusting underneath it also appears in the Zornhau in a similar context. Okay. Oh, I've got a question, just to throw the cat amongst the pigeons. Your opponent's an elder, and you decide to strongly cut down to them. How does this cut keep you safe? Ha! Huh. Safe. You're in a sword fight. <laughs> Not safe. <laughs> Nothing's safe. <laughs> well, That's you have right of way, you see. <laughs> exactly. So, so your hit lands higher on that. Yeah, you get the bleeding head wound. How are they yeah. going to get the bleeding you head wound? You probably hit them on the head, so you get three points, and they only hit your hand, so they only get one point. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so, for a ser to to answer this seriously, it doesn't protect you from uh, anything. the The cover is your threat, and. You have to, in order to use this, you have to know that your opponent is going to take it seriously and come up and parry, which is like a common way to fence from uh, low guards and not just stab you. And if you I think see. that they're going to stab you, then don't do this. Go down into Albor and, and match them and force them to come up. Or draw them out and then shield into it because they're stabbing from below, which means it's fluke and you can shield. Right. It's interesting that what we see in Lichtenauer texts is not the common groin thrust that comes up out of Albert in our fencing. Um, that they generally seem to assume that the right thing to do when you're any kind of, kind of low guard is use something like a striken or various parries along those lines, right? The striken is the short edge rising cut from 
the plays that are sometimes attributed to Ringek. Uh, but you also see it in a lot of the common fencing texts when they're fencing from low guards. So that thrust is more of a rapier technique that isn't, doesn't seem to be taught for longsword. I don't know why that is. But so, so you could argue that that was just not part of their fencing game. That it's, trying it's to because they knew. It's because they knew that they didn't have right of way. Um, but, but I would also argue that if you're doing the cut to long point, that you do have a reasonable, reasonable ability to parry what they're going to throw out from below. So if you see your opponent is actually going to attack you as you're moving, then you can adjust course and keep yourself safe. You don't have no. to eat that strike. Generally, from the long point position, I find you can make the parry if they're trying to thrust your body, but if they're going to like try to do a rising thrust to your hands, you can they can eat you pretty efficiently. Exactly. The On a slightly more serious note as well, the thing I find most useful for helping get people to parry is going through high, like a high overhead tag, um, like Lou uh, implies. Well, I say implies, like Lou explicitly says. Doing that while setting the left foot forward kind of as a, a preparation action before throwing it and then immediately committing to the cut very often gets people to, in my experience, gets people to respect the incoming threat because the, thre the threat's very obvious. Whereas if I try to sneak into distance and just snap it out, they're more likely to try and counterattack into me instead. Yeah, telegraphing is definitely part of how you make this work. Yeah, I've actually been doing that a lot lately. I've been calling it the reversed, the reverse Schreckfenster, which is because <laughs> you have like the normal Schreckfenster from a cut, which is like you cut into long point in front of their face. So the reverse Schreckfenster is you approach close to them um, in long point, and then you step in close and raise your sword over your head, which is you know if they if they catch you, then they get an easy thrust. An easy uh, attack on preparation, not Christ and thrust, but it has a surprisingly high success rate with getting people to react and open something up. Yeah, I mean, in general, I've found that the over-the-head vimtag seems ten times scarier than shoulder vimtag, which looks like you know whatever. Um, so, like, it, it is just it sort of menacing in a way that shoulder vimtag never is. And if you pair it with the the sorry mike just one more one more little thing but if you pair the shift overhead from tag with the like setting the left foot forward as a sharp quite a sharp aggressive footwork action um you end up creating a very kind of strong brief sense of threat um and if you attack when that sense of threat is imposed on the opponent they're a lot more likely to try and parry now it's also worth noting that the we, we can look to Clooney for one piece of tactical advice here which is the Clooney illustration of Fomtag is with the point forward. So it's like if you took your typical Alber and mirrored it above your above you, where you're holding your sword diagonally in front of you, but pointed forward. Um, they still that's what it calls Fomtag. And the Scheidelhau shows what we would think of as high Fomtag with the point kicked back, suggesting that this person is actually knocking the point back as their specific preparation to do a Scheidelhau. So they're not just approaching there, but they're actually exaggerating, this is what I'm doing now, my sword is over my head. And you see this also in your Wilhelm in the same context of you're actually going to a more extreme sort of aggressive high vom tug as an intimidating move. Um, and that, and I, I like that um, strategy. 
unless you're, but it doesn't work against people who are genuinely not caring because they want to hit you. And I think it also doesn't work if you're in a scene where nobody does direct attacks from Hive on Tag. Mm. If, yeah. if I'm an Alba and you go up to Hive on Tag and I know that you're going to try and do some loop de loop mayor cut from there, I'm just going <laughs> to stab you. If, <laughs> if yeah. I'm an Alba and you go up to Hive on Tag and you step forward and you start uh, lunging forwards and flicking your back leg out like Martin Fabian in a sexy video, then I'm going to not want a concussion. (laughs) (laughs) So something I have um, done, especially with students of mine, to try and cure them of the habit of just stabbing into this threat is like just deliberately let them hit you and and deliver the hit a couple of times. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Because it reestablishes what the fencing context is. If they're used to, okay, I'm going to try and counterattack into this super telegraphed attack, and they're going to try and abort it or do some complicated compound attack, then the counterattack becomes a good move. But just making sure I do a few reps like early in the early in the bout or early in the once a month or something where I deliberately throw the telegraph it and throw it and ignore what they're doing helps get them in the right frame of mind for the rest of the game to work. You mean a state of abject fear? Just in a in the habit of okay, uh, counterattacking into this massively telegraphed attack isn't a good idea, but I can parry riposta and then I'm safe. But like reminding yeah. them that it's a good idea to parry cuts to your head does help. But uh, but if this was a real fight with sharps, I just feel that you're not taking this very martially, T. If this was a real fight with a sharp, I'd have won. <laughs> attack <Yeah>. <laughs> next. <laughs> I killed this guy and my mates can like roll up the rest of their flank or something. I don't know. <laughs> Who cares about real fights? Yeah. Remember after you hit the one guy, you have to turn to your next opponent. Because I'm not on the internet. Alright, um let, let's pull this back in. Um Can we talk what? about Crown? Let's talk about the Crown. Yeah, go for it, guys. Do you want to read some more gloss? Or should we just uh, keep rolling? Yes, I can. I can, I can open up tabs. All right. Where are we? Is it, um, again, a play from the part at this ring egg bit here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Again, a play from the part of, with its turn, the chest is quickly threatened. Gloss. No, this is when you strike in and hang in the point to the face with the parter. If he then shoves the point firmly upwards with his hilt in the displacement of the parter, Invert your sword with the hilt firmly upwards high in front of your head, such that the thumb comes below, and set the point under his hands upon his chest, as Stan pictured here. That doesn't help. Sorry, podcast listeners. How the crown breaks the parter. Whatever comes from him, the crown takes away. Gloss note. When Actually, can we talk the... about this ring egg one for like two seconds before we go on to the oh, next oh, one? Fine, go ahead, ring egg boy. I've already, I've already been talking about this a little bit, but... <laughs> Like the probably the two quick things to mention are that this is a um, the word here is care um, uh, and invert is actually vercare uh, like in the vercare um, and it's the same handwork action that Ringek describes as the vercare is being used here for again the same basic action of turning the sword over to bring the point into presence and draw a parry or a, deliver an attack, which is an interesting little parallel. Um, but it's uh, so vercare dein Schwert, so so invert your sword. So that's like a, an interesting little detail to note. 
The other interesting we, thing is that it mentions a picture, but in this part of Glasgow, there actually is no illustrations. However, uh, so this our podcast listeners are no worse off. Yeah, but however, this play is pictured in Goliath, which doesn't have this text, but it clearly shows a guy who's thrusting underneath his opponent's parry right next to the text of the Scheidelhau. Um, so the uh, the artist apparently, or whoever was in charge of the manuscript, knew that this was part of the play, but it wasn't in the text, so they didn't. So they just drew it anyways. The right. Dan does say you th can thrust him in the breast, but he doesn't tell you to do it under his guard the way Ringek does. Let's get to that crown. All right. Okay, under the crown. <laughs> how, how the crown breaks the parter. Whatever comes from him, the crown takes it away. Gloss note. When you cleave an above with a parter, if he displaces with the hilt high over his head, this displacement is called the crown, and with it, he runs into you. This is the text and gloss, how the cut breaks the crown. Cut through the crown, so you break... Should I be reading this bit? We get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, I should read sure this bit. Read I'll that. read this bit. This is the text and the gloss, how the cut breaks the crown. Cut through the crown, so you break the hard beautifully. Press the strike, withdraw it with cutting. Gloss note. When he displaces the parter, or otherwise another hue, with a crown, and with it, and with that runs in, so take the undercut, blow his hands into his arm, and press firmly upwards, as stands pictured next to this. Sorry, listeners. So the crown is broken again, well broken, and wind your sword from the undercut into the overcut, and with that withdraw yourself, and step to him when he does again displaces. When he again displaces. Right. Word soup. Sorry, guys. So what? So what is the crown? Well, it's different in um, Ringek and Lev. And I think the only thing that Mike read was the Ringek version. Yeah. Let me just read the Lev version real quick. If he parries with the crown so that the point and a key on at the sword both stand upward and rises with it and shoves your point upward, blah, 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 slice through it. So for Ringek, we have um, rising and parrying with the cross guard um, high over the head. And in Lev, we have parrying. So one of the things on your cross guard, one of the keyons on your cross guard, and the point both stand upward. So I think those are two different things. Uh, so it's interesting uh, that you say he's parrying with the cross, because all it says is he has his hilt over his head and doesn't mention... What the, what the actual parry is, and neither do the other ones. So they're talking about a hilt position and not about a parry. That's the first interesting thing, um, because I can hold my hilt over my head in a bunch of different ways. So the hilt is the same word that's used for um, the hilt knock in the Tverhal, though. So yeah, it's a, it seems it reasonable to treat it as the cross guard. But handle, you, they say like hand hob or or bind. If you do a hanging parry, where is your hilt? Above your head. Uh-huh. So, I don't know. I think that that's not the only way to read it. When people do the the parry that they say is the same as Fiore, but it's definitely not the same as Fiore. So, the, the common interpretation comes from looking, uh, people 20 or 30 years ago looking at one version of Fiore, where he has a guard called Posta di Corona, the position of the crown, where the hilt is held in front of his chest, and the point is directed upward. And they use that to transform into this strange other parry where you hold your point up 
with your hilt above your head and use the cross to catch their strike. I don't think that's supported by any text in a German manual. Like, that's pretty much what's shown in the uh, Glasgow illustration, to whatever extent you can interpret the Glasgow illustration. Um, yeah, the way the slice is shown against the crown. Let's... So, but in that, he's not actually... So, that he's not parrying. The, well, we'll let's, let's put, we can put the Glasgow illustration in the show notes. He appears to be standing in high from tug. Um, he's clearly having his arms pushed up and back. Yeah, and that's that's where you end up if you uh, are in the kind of classic uh, Hema crown and somebody slices your arms. I would say you can end up there from a lot of positions, though. The Getting the arms to twist back up like that from a slice is very difficult, whereas if the point's already over the head, it's really easy. Like, if the point's already high up, getting somebody into that position is pretty trivial. If their point is in some sort of hanging parry or something, you basically won't get it to come back up into that high tag style position. So another another interpretation that exists is that you hold your sword in sort of a making sort of a V shape. So it's like a, if you take a hanging parry and rotate it upwards, so the point is directed upwards, then you get an interesting position that's maybe splits the difference between a hanging parry and the Hema crown. That is what I think uh, the Lev version is, because you got a point and you have a yeah, Kian both standing upward. Right. Mm -hmm. Making it. And, and also says the same thing, I believe. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but Danzig doesn't matter. Right. Except when he tells you that you're raising your arms in response to a parry. Yeah, I was just pulling up the German for this um Ring Eck one, and it really depends how you read it. You can read it in such a way that it's definitely explicitly saying like the Fiore crown. Um, and you can read it in a way where it's vague and can be pretty much anything. So, so let's talk I, about the other crown, the fun crown. Oh, the so, uh, half sword. Yeah, all of the illustrations that show a person standing in crown, um, to which I'm not going to include the Glasgow one because it's a person being sliced, and we don't know where he started. But when all the things that say this is the crown, uh, beginning with Clooney, going through Faulkner, going through Wilhelm, and ending all in the Fire, as well. Yeah. What? Dud, just just saying what you're about to say. Yeah, just and there's a so person holding the sword um, in the short sword or half sword grip um, over there with the sword pointed to the left. So they release with their left hand and then grab the middle of the blade. And that's called the crown through beginning in the late 15th century all the way through the 16th century, including in Hans Madel, who attributes that teaching to Hans Sadenfaden von Erfurt who is one of the Society of Lichtenauer. So he calls it Sadenfaden's crown. Um, and this suggests to me that there might actually be a sharp difference in interpretation between the RDL glosses, which could all be describing the same position, and this maybe Sadenfaden version, which is definitely not what anyone else is describing, because none of them mention the half-sword. And But he also mentions that there's an open crown and a closed crown. So he tells you to hold the sword Tver, Right to hold it crosswise or hold it in the short sword position. Um, his exact wording is da, 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 da. yeah, with his sword held fair over his head or gripped with the armored hand, which is a way of describing the half sword position. So Satan Fodden apparently taught both, 
And I think the holding the sword Tver was what I would call a hanging parry, although it's not hanging yeah. very much at that point. So, so Maidel at least thinks that this is what the crown is, and as do a bunch of illustrated treatises. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because uh, the counters, the breaking of the crown, um, the slice for it is is pretty much. I know in Jörg Wilhelm it is. It might be in uh, Hans Maidel also, but the slicing against it is depicted and described. But there's also another counter to that crown, which is lifting up and hooking with the uh, cross guard and pulling it down. Mm -hmm. And I think that one that one's shown in uh, Jörg Wilhelm. I think it's shown in Cluny, and it's yep. described in um, Hans Madel as well. Yeah. So the whole Scheidelhaus section in Hans Madel lines up very closely with Cluny and Wilhelm, the, the illustrated treatises from around the same time. So it's it's very well attested. The question is, why is it different from what RDL is teaching? And is it evidence of like a schism or you know a divergence in like in our tradition, or are we just misunderstanding something? I vote for a divergence. And I, I I've tried for many years to make them all agree, which is why I, I have to include the hanging parry as a possible interpretation of what Ringek is describing. Um, and maybe even what the other ones are describing, where you start with the point up and then you lower the point as you make contact. But I'm not convinced that's true. It may be that we actually have two different students of Lichtenauer who have different interpretations, which is cool if that's the case. That's kind of exciting um, because it teaches us about how many traditions work. The way I see it is A, like if the uh, Ringek Danzig Love one was supposed to be half sword then why didn't they say anything about it because yeah. they don't have any problem saying it in other places and b there's no reason that there shouldn't be like more than one tradition and and I, and so i think you could so what ringek is describing could be the same as what madel means when he says hold the sword crosswise over your head um hold the different sword with the hilt over your head those could be the same but i'm more interested in the idea that Satan Faden and Ringek actually have different versions of the Scheidelhaus. Because in that case, they're both Society of Lichtenauer. So they both have equal claims to authority um, from Lichtenauer, as far as we understand anything. Um, but why would they have, why would they, why are they teaching different things? What does that tell us about anything? It's interesting to think about. I'm not going to say I've ever used the Satan Faden's crown. I mean, I do a hanging parry all the time. Um, oh, but not the half sword parry. Um, that seems like a thing that is kind of awkward and hard to do in this situation. Oh, I, I mean, tried that against Mike Smallridge the first time we ever fenced, like three years ago. Yeah, how'd it go? Uh, he fractured my finger. Yeah, oh. it, it seems like the armor actually wants you to have hand oh. armor to do it effectively. Um, not I, I thought you were going to tell us it totally worked, but... <laughs> I've never done it in a situation that matters, like a tournament or anything, but I've done it in sparring a bunch of times, and sometimes it works. Yeah. I mean... So, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, popping up to any version of this hanging parry, I think, is a faster action from Albert than trying to do the Hema crown. So it has that in its favor. And doing the half-sword, maybe not quite as fast as doing the, the crosswise parry, but... It's a shorter movement, and so it. I think it is worth considering for that as well. 
Whereas going all the way up to him a crown is a huge sweep. You can do the half sword crown fast. The problem is if you do it at the wrong time, like if you know you predict wrong when they're going to attack, then you've shown your hand because you've literally shown your hand because the person sees you removing <laughs> your hand from the sword and going to half sword. So you're like, all right, I guess I guess I can't try that again anymore. <laughs> Yeah. So the way I tend to actually approach this from a teaching and like fencing perspective is that it doesn't really matter uh, which version of the crown people do. Um, the common the common factor is in all the kind of potential versions and all the descriptions are that it's high over the head, it's done while trying to rush forwards, and it doesn't threaten with the blade. Yeah. And that could be the kind of classic Hema crown. It could be a sort of strike in action with a sprint, with a like a jump or leap forwards. It could be a half sword or a crosswise thing or a hanging parry or pretty much anything that all fit in that same broad category. And all of those can pretty much be met with the same response, which is to try and slice. Mm. I'd agree with that. So like, it's an interesting question academically, but practically speaking, the, the big important thing for me a lot of the time when it comes around this stuff is less exactly how are they trying to make the parry? You know, are they like lifting the hands up slightly crossed and in this V shape? Or are they kind of coming up sort of just straight over the head? Or are they coming across? Well, if the end result of that is I'm going to do exactly the same thing, it kind of doesn't really matter exactly what they did. And I think that's probably intentional. Yeah. So do, do we want to talk about pressing the sweeps? And withdrawing them with slicing. We got about fifteen minutes. Can do. <laughs> well, there's no gloss for it. It's it's like a uh, it's it's a phantom couplet that's that's put here that's not glossed because there's no even though sweeping up is something that's very you know common from being in a low guard. We're told to do it in the in the glosses and. There's like the fencing from the sweeps, and everybody does it when they're fencing. But and we have this cool couplet here about supposedly what it seems like countering the sweeps, but there's no gloss for it, unfortunately. In the glosses, this gets rolled into the description of slicing under and over the arms, including the part where it tells you to withdraw with slicing. Um, so they don't recognize it as a separate play. But the presence of striking in a play that doesn't seem to, or in the saddle when there's no apparent striking in the gloss, is puzzling. That could be what's being what's being depicted in the thing where you hook your cross over their sword, I guess. But I don't know. Do you have an interpretation, Steve? The well, I have a wild theory. Go for it. Even better. <laughs> And that is that the the last play of the Nachreisen, so like the old slice, pretty much like describes what's going on here because you have your opponent who um, hews off target in front of you and ends up in a low guard, and then you cut in and they sweep up onto your sword, and then you come off, then you bind and you come off the bind and press with the slice onto their hands. So to me, that's a pretty a pretty close you know gloss of what this couplet says so hmm. i don't know yeah that could be but, it 
Yes. Anyway. So the ancient slice just means the previous slice from the previous section. Yeah, I have a like a uh I don't know. I have conspiracy theories about like the all, all of these couplets at the end that talk about like doubling and slicing and stuff. But it's not so you fully secretly put them together and add up the numbers of the letters and it gives you the answer. <laughs> it gives you exactly. 17, right? <laughs> yep. How'd you guys know? <laughs> so speaking of slicing here, the one of the things I tend to teach people to do when I teach this action is to often take like a sort of reverse lunge or something to get the arms under their arms and to get a straight line of force from the front of the arms where it's making contact with them to the back foot um, that can resist uh, resist the charge. And if you do both of those together, you can bounce somebody who's like 50% or more of your body weight straight off you, which is quite fun. I have a video somewhere of me doing this to someone. I'll dig it up so we can put it in the notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like if you if you have them moving upwards and coming forwards, you can drop this straight line structure in the way and they'll just pretty much bounce straight off and then you can withdraw yourself if you need to uh, yeah. from that situation. I have trouble doing the actual slice. I always end up fist to fist. Yeah. Well, if I was trying to teach the slice to you, I'd be getting you to pretty much like do a modern fencing level of splits to get down low enough to get a pressure <laughs> underneath their arms. That's not going to happen. Yeah, so maybe it's not your play. <laughs> well, I do the fist to fist thing, and you can push into them, and if they're not super strong, get them leaning backwards, yeah. which is advantageous. Yeah, blocking somebody's hands and while well, their feet are running in will definitely mess them up, even if it's not a full slice. Yeah, that's like an old kendo trick. Um, it's kind of a dirty trick in kendo because you don't really... It, it's 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 seen as like not nice to push someone like upwards because what? if they're running in and, and you push like up and in against them, then there's a chance that they'll lose their footing and fall on the back of their head. Yes. And but in, <laughs> yeah, but in long sword that's considered a good thing. So okay. I guess. I'll, I'll tell you that I'll, uh, I've been in touch with the local kendo club. Ooh. Yeah. So it, it's good to know all the things that I shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> well, just do what they say. Don't worry about what I say. I'm. No. no, just okay. do whatever you want and tell them that there's this guy Steve in like America who taught you how to do kendo. <laughs> As I start throwing out to fair house. Why would they give me points? You already know everything. Just tell them that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else to add before we wrap up? I guess throw in since we talked about Hans Madel that we haven't really covered his whole theory of secret names for cuts in a while. Um, because the Krimpai didn't have one, and then I forgot about it. Um, but yeah. for him, the Scheidelhau is an interesting play um, because he says it's also the Storzau, but it's actually a combination move where you do your Storzau and then hit him with the Scheidelhau after that, I believe. Um, so that's interesting. But also interesting is that he has a Hans Seidenfaden Scheidelhau, um, which is a strike to the top of the head followed by a rising cut to the right side of his head. So instead of doing that follow-up thrust, it's almost like he's going immediately to a cut instead. Just bam, bam. High and then low on the head. And that's, his, that's what he calls Seidenfaden Scheidelhau. 
there's also I think like uh, Faulkner says something like do three like four cuts with three steps or something. Uh, that, that, uh, I have that here somewhere. Yeah, uh, strike through below with three steps. Make four blows from both sides. Right, and then I don't remember the exact words, but I think Jörg Wilhelm. Um, he doesn't describe it. Well, he doesn't describe anything in detail, but he implies something about the Scheidelhau or something related to the Scheidelhau being like a multi-cut thing or like a multi-step combination. But unfortunately, I don't have. I, I haven't prepared the uh, evidence for that. Uh, so, oh no, Steve! I've just had a quick look and. Uh, MS3227A, the poll book, the one that I love to hate, says nothing about this. It's just unglossed. Yeah. yeah. He does have, I believe, an extra verse. That's probably the no. best thing about 3227A, honestly, is that he leaves this out. <laughs> uh, but nice. the extra couplet is just like, the Scheidelhau's really good, guys. Yeah, the scalp you like, right? <laughs> if it arrives not too lazily. The PQ. Hmm? The PQ. <laughs> the PQ I prize if you're not sloth. I don't know. Yeah. Come on, so... Harry, make up some extra good rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm done talking about the peaker. Yep. GG. Oh, last last thing then. Um the so is the Schiller Mitscheidler, or as we agreed, the peaker with peaker. <laughs> Is <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> is something that's that we know was part of the Max Bruder curriculum, and is a line in the title that doesn't really have an explanation. Um, but but Madel's so last time I mentioned that Talhofer has an interpretation where he adds the Scheidelhau into a Schielhau play, and here Hans Madel calls his um, Sturzhau into a Scheidelhau technique. The the squinter with scalper or peeker with peeker. <laughs> Flip your sword around in the punch strike that is in the part strike in the recital with the point against him well inside in the scales under his hue or sword to the face or chest. Thereafter, work whatever you wish. Ah, he calls that because he refers to the starting position as the cockeye, which I believe is the vexel guard. Or, so he starts from low instead of from high. And then does his Stortzau Scheidel interpretation. Mm. Anyways, he also mentions you can do it against a descending cut, which interestingly in the RDL glasses, they never mentioned the Scheidelhau against a cut. The other five strikes, the other four of the five strikes, all can be done against a guard and against a cut, and the Scheidelhau is only against a cut. Watch. Well, no, Zornhau doesn't have a guard. T, I, I apologize. I meant to say <laughs> the other four can all be done against a cut, and the, I didn't mention meant to say guard. And then the uh, Scheidelhau is only against a guard. Yeah, so, and that's why it's the same thing as the Zornhau, right? Yeah. So four of the five are against cuts, including the Zorn, and four of the five are against guards, including the Scheidelhau. And if you put those two together, you get a complete um, one of the five strikes, where it can be used Whoa. against a cut. Can you draw me a Venn diagram? It's still early in the morning. That, I think Travis Mayer drew that diagram on one of his blog posts after he and I talked about it. What about Shrekfenster? 
the noblest that, guard. That is the noblest okay. and best guard. Okay. Here's, here's a question, since we're about to sign off. Is Kron a guard? Yes. Well, what is a guard? <laughs> Asking the deep questions here. Well, well, language only has meaning through use, right? Wittgenstein established that. So do we, <laughs> do we establish Kron as a guard? Uh, it's never referred to as a guard, I think. It's never called one of the. It's definitely never called one of the legger. It might be. I'm just skimming. I don't. I don't, I don't see hut anywhere. But I am I missing it? Uh, Ringex says this displacement is called the crown, but that's Versatsung there. So no. Yeah, it looks like they all just call it. Well, Lev says if he parries with the crown, if he fezzets with the crown. So it's a parry, but not necessarily a guard. Well, it's a position. The way Lev is the way Lev is using it, I would say that the crown is a position that is being used here to make a parry. Oh, so really, there's five for Zetson. Yeah. <laughs> there's like seven Lager and five for Zetson. Yeah. But what it isn't from a, I guess actually no, I won't. Spoilers for next week, but if you take a view of the of the four guards that are kind of based on what their functional sort of natures are, are they high or low? Are they threatening with the point or not? Then the crown is basically just a specialized form of uh, Vomtag um, in basically any of its incarnations. So it doesn't need to be its own thing. Whoa. <laughs> well, everything is on point. Crown just has the the point. It's the long point to the upper left or the whatever they're. Well, unless you're doing a hanging parry, and then it sucks. No, no even if it's a hanging parry, as long as the point's not pointing kind of at them, it's basically just still tug. Is hmm. is it long point shortened? The like shortened if they're point, if I've got my <laughs> sword horizontally across me, like horizontally turn me, then I'm not threatening with the point, so it's tug again. Let, let, let's save this game for next week. This will be the main feature of that episode. Cool. Fun with fun with guards. Or is it Alber? Fun with typology. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. This has been Offensive by the Book episode. What are we in now on? Like uh, 22. 20, uh, I've been your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us have been our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.